This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So as we focus increasingly on testing and tracing to get control of the coronavirus, technology will play a large role in really assessing lots of information. Here to talk about specifically the digital tools to fight COVID-19 is Dr. Lane Labrique. He is an infectious disease uh, epidemiologist, um, and he's very well known when it comes to his work specifically on applying information and communication technologies. Chair of the World Health Organization's Digital Health Guidelines Development Group. He's also an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which is, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. He joins us, Dr. Labrique, on the phone from Baltimore. Dr. Labrique, nice to have you here with us. Um, we do hear an awful lot from governors and mayors, um, health officials, about the importance of testing and tracing. Technology will play a huge role in all of this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Carol. And, you know, it's important to understand that unlike the influenza pandemic of 1918, we're living in a world that's more connected than ever before. There are more cell phones than there are people on the planet. So I think, you know, we, each, each of these cell phones has the computing power that's more than what we use to send man to the moon in the Apollo mission. So if we, if we fail to leverage the power of these devices that that most, if not uh, all of the people who are, who are uh, living with, with, through this pandemic are, have in their pockets will really be, uh, be missing out on a major, major opportunity. Um, the, the real question now is, is you know, we're, we're entering into a phase where it's a bit like the game of uh, whack-a-mole, hmm. right? Uh, if, we, if we're not given a, a mallet to whack the moles down, uh, when each time a case pops up, we need to be able to find out as soon as possible who they may have been in contact with. And the delays around finding out those contacts and trying to shut down the spread of the virus is going to be the difference between success and failure in reopening up the economy and getting out of this uh, pandemic phase. And so in an ideal world, Dr. Labrique, how does this work? I mean, how would it look to an everyday person uh, like me, Carol is not an everyday person. She's an extraordinary person. But for an, an everyday person like myself, like, how am I interacting with this? So I think, you know, both of you are probably extraordinary people. But um, Jason is. what we're talking about is uh, having a large proportion of a population downloading uh, an app or a, a, a series of apps that share a common uh, backbone technology that, that basically is on all the time so that so that in the background, it's capturing information, hopefully in a very secure and, and, uh, and protected way, about who we're interacting with on a daily basis for extended periods of time. Then, if, if down the road someone finds out that they are COVID positive, without going through the laborious process of trying to go back and think through who were all the people that person had contact with, over the past week or so, the app should be automatically able to calculate all of the other people 
who that person was in, in contact with, because those other people had the app as well. And I think that's where the challenge is, right? You can imagine if, I, if I'm standing in a crowd of people and I'm the only one of, uh, of 100 people who has that app on their phone, it's not going to do us any good. So, so yeah, that's the, the real challenge is, is adoption. How do we get as many people as possible as part of our, our civic duty to download these applications that will, will then allow us to speed up that process of, of find, finding the brush fires and, and shutting them down uh, effectively. That, that's the big so challenge. I have to say, Dr. Leblique, part of me is like, finally, we're going to have technology cooperation in our kind of healthcare environment, right? Because I feel like it's been so slow to happen. And I, and I do wonder if this is the hurdle that really creates some massive systems that makes our healthcare system more efficient, where the system works better and we benefit as patients. On the other hand, man, what kind of privacy are we giving up? Yeah, it's absolutely. That, that's the, the million-dollar question, yeah. right? It's, it's, um, it's a real difference between uh, collectivist and individualist societies, uh, where how much of our privacy are we willing to give up and who are we willing to allow to monitor this data and, and have access to this information. And this is at the heart of the big debate that's going on right now. Um, Apple and Google recently made a lot of news about launching a system that would allow this data to be captured in an anonymized and secure way um, without giving control of that data to a centralized authority. And, and that's where a lot of the challenges, the UK has said they're not going to go with that system and other countries are, are struggling through this and Germany has just said that they will accept that decentralized system. And what this means is uh, the data is not made available to the public health authorities. Basically, you, as the holder of the, the app, get notified if you have been potentially exposed to some anonymous person who was uh, shedding, possibly shedding a virus. And so, you know, as a public health professional, would I like to have access to that information so I can help those people take care of themselves and I can help make sure they have the best information possible and I can also track the number of potential cases and contacts? Right. Sure. That, that would be the ideal. But I think we have to make some compromises about how much data people are willing to give away versus how many people we can get involved in these systems. Well, let's continue our conversation with Dr. Alan Labrick. He is infectious disease epidemiologist and associate professor at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. And you just heard uh, Charlie mention that that school, of course, supported by Mike Bloomberg, the owner of this radio station. So, Dr. Labrique, you know, one of the questions that I feel like comes up, and we talked a lot about the, the privacy aspect to this, but I keep thinking about this notion that we live in a global world and people travel, at least in normal times, all over the globe. How does this tracing work Globally, it's one thing for like my little town here in you know the New York suburbs to maybe be able to pull this off, but doing this on at scale seems really hard. Yeah, I mean it's a good question, uh, Jason. I think the the there are different tools for different parts of the the pandemic problem. the The application for contact tracing that that we've been talking about is really about how do we manage the bulk of the forest fire 
that we're dealing with here in, in the U.S. And, and if as a country we can come together and, and use a technology in a way that's smart, that protects this fundamental human right to privacy, that's very important in a democracy, um, and that is, that is carefully overseen and in, in a bipartisan way, in a nonpartisan way, that the, the personal information is, is used only to protect public health and for no other purpose. And, and whenever it's possible to de-aggregate or de-identify data, to aggregate data or to de-identify data um, so that you know, individual identity isn't compromised, uh, I think we have to learn from what other countries have done successfully uh, and, and try to adapt things that places like Hong Kong or Singapore or South Korea have done with, with varying degrees of success, but nonetheless they've, they've used the power of technology to get a handle on the, the pandemic in their co- country. So how do we adopt those strategies to the U.S.? is really a, a, the critical question at hand. I do um, wonder too, Dr. Labrique, if post 9-11, right, I feel like there's a lot of information that we've already shared um, just because of making sure that we're safe when we get on airlines and airplanes um, and whether it's through global entry or through TSA. So I do wonder if we've already jumped over one hurdle and this is just another one that, you know, this is the world we're living in and we need to figure out how to be safe on so many different levels. Is that fair or not apples to apples? I think it's it's a choice that that we have to make individually and collectively. Uh, I think this kind of access to information or special legal powers that come into play during public health emergencies is not something that doesn't have precedent. Um, there have been many many epidemics and, and outbreaks of disease in, in U.S. history where uh, legal authority has been granted to public health. Uh, systems to, to take action and, and protect the public's health during an emergency. So I think it's, it's important to, to convey to the public that these measures are largely temporary for, for the most part um, in order for us to be able to control the epidemic and move us into a, a state of, of normalcy, relative normalcy, where we can go about our daily lives without the amount of uh, Fear and concern that has been so dominant over the past uh, four to five weeks. So I, I think I think you, you hit the nail on the head. We have to consider how is life going to change uh, permanently, and what are some of the emergency temporary measures that we have to take as a country in order for us to get a handle on this virus. Only about thirty seconds left here. How optimistic are you at this moment that we do the right thing? I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic. I think we're impatient, yeah. but uh, we need to be more patient and more optimistic. Science, science and scientists know, uh, for the most part, ways to, to combat this uh, pandemic, and we need to be listening to the voice of reason and the voice of science. Yeah. All right. God, I feel better. Yeah, I feel a little better. Yeah. Good. <laughs> it's that Good. privacy thing you're a little nervous about. Yeah, a little nervous about that. But, I have to. You know. I have to say there is part of me that's a skeptic and like, who do I trust with all of this? But you know what? I feel like so much of our information is unfortunately out there already. Yeah, totally.
Absolutely, yeah. No, that is that's one hundred percent true. All right. Our thanks to Dr. Alan Labrie, so smart, infectious disease epidemiologist and associate professor at the Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's also the chair of the World Health Organization's Digital Health Guidelines Development Group on the front lines, uh, in a yeah. different way in in some sense, in terms of understanding where we go from here. Yeah, and the next stage, I think, in terms of dealing with the virus. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser, let's talk about the cover story in Bloomberg Business Week this week. It is a tour de force in many ways, (laughs) and one of these stories that you really just want to seek your teeth into, and it also tells you a lot about the state of the world, including a little bit on the virus, obviously, because you can't touch anything without that, but the oil market and specifically the story of Exxon. Brian Gruley wrote it. He joins us on the phone from Florida, as does Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. So, Joel, you know, it was interesting because, you know, we communicate with you about what the cover is going to be. And when you told us Exxon, I was like, oh, yeah, (laughs) sort of like put my hands together. I can't wait uh, to get my hands on that. Tell us why now. Well, um, it's a, it actually in, ends up being a pretty important um, week for Exxon. They had a dividend announcement that they made yesterday. They have earnings on Friday. Obviously, the backdrop is the carnage that happened in the oil markets last week, where we saw basically some unprecedented action with uh, oil prices going negative and surplus just being you know, everything that can possibly hold oil anywhere in the world is ho- holding oil right now. All of which leads us to a company that's like basically the West's most powerful oil company. And for years, this is actually basically the most valuable company in the world. But as, as Brian's story, and, and to be clear, he co-wrote it with Kevin Crowley, um, it makes clear there's basically been a decade of miscalculations that um, have really gotten us to this moment. And now comes cheap oil um, with the wave of coronavirus. Um, Brian, when you guys dug into this, what what kind of miscalculations um, did you guys find? You know, essentially, Exxon started behaving less dis- in a less disciplined way than it had into you know the early aughts, where you know they would announce a deal for some acreage or another company, and it was clear to the street, here's how they're going to make money off this in the near term. And so in 09, they bought a really big natural gas company to get in on shale gas. And I think gas prices started dropping even before they closed the deal. Um, and they could have gone into shale oil. They totally didn't. Um, could have made a lot of money then at that time, but they did gas. They got creamed. Uh, same thing, uh, they went into the oil sands in Western Canada, very expensive way to get oil out of uh, sand, essentially. It's more like mining than drilling. And that turned out to be $16 billion spent hmm. not for not very much. Uh, Russia, another going to be a great big deal with uh, the old Exxon CEO, Rex Tillerson, his comrade uh, Vladimir Putin, envisioning three to $500 billion in the Arctic. And then Putin went after Crimea and Obama said, you're not doing business over there anymore, Exxon. And that kind of killed that deal. And so it was going after these great, big, risky deals. And underlying this was 
to some degree the assumption that we all held for many, many years, decades even, that oil is a finite resource and it's going to run out. We're going to hit peak oil. And and as as all they were doing all that, that assumption was changing radically because of the technology that enables companies to uh, break into very tight spaces of oil and gas and bring out these huge uh, deposits of oil and gas that just weren't acceptable right. before. So we went from uh, scarce, assumed scarcity to certain abundance. So I, I have to say, Brian, I feel like you and Kevin have the makings of a book here. And there have been several books written about Exxon because and I think you cite um, one where they called Exxon one of the most powerful businesses ever produced by American capitalism. And they have been a company, right, just great, a sign of great corporate America and just have plowed ahead decade after decade. So here we are now, and they're in a tough spot on a many different levels. Can they plow ahead? Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, Exxon's, you know, they're not going bankrupt. Or they're, they're, not, they're not in that kind of trouble. Um, uh, they have a, a reasonably strong balance sheet given the circumstances in the market. And what's going to happen in oil in the next several months, there is, there is a good chance that a lot of the independent, smaller players in the shale fields in West Texas and in North Dakota are just, you know, they're not going to be able to make it. And so they're going to look to the big boys to buy them out. And, you know, the Exxons and Chevrons of the world aren't going to pay them 90 cents on the dollar. They're going to buy them on the cheap. So that's going to be an opportunity for them to buy some assets that they could make you know, useful on the cheap. Um, but other than that, you know, some of the investors we spoke with, they're like, so – they just keep spending, spending, spending on this bet, betting on this thing that's going to happen five years from now. And, you know, it's like free beer tomorrow. <laughs> they just keep pushing it back five years. And at some point, you know, well, the street's already expressed its frustration with that sign. Um, but there's some opportunity here for them. I think one of the main challenges, Jason, just in the, and, and Carol, just in the here and now is, is literally just that cost of oil, right? Like, we have yeah. um, a pretty pretty amazing look uh, at what their break-even cost is for 2020. And it is I, – I just asked you, what do you think it would be, Jason? So I, I unfortunately you know. uh, I unfortunately <laughs> already know it because you told me uh, as we were teeing up the price. It's 60 right? 60 bucks, yeah, which is $5 more yeah. than BP, $10 more than Shell and Chevron. And you just think about where the cost of oil is, and it just the, the dynamics are just moving against them. But uh, like to Brian's point here, like this is a company that they know what they're doing, yeah. and maybe they've missed it a couple times. And the other thing that we're going to see now is um, Texas has proven, and the Permian Basin has proven to be this really powerful force that can switch it on, switch it off. But it's also a place that there's a lot of debt. So somebody like an Exxon could come in and, and actually make some pretty lucrative investments and, and you know, perhaps write its ship a little bit. Um, 
It's so a must read. It's an it's an absolute must read. Um, I really was blown away by the story. It's the cover story in this week. And the other uh, great thing is, as we've recently started doing, you can actually hear this story later on uh, in our podcast feed. Uh, you'll hear a professional reading it. It's not even us. It's more professional than us uh, reading this story, but it is in the Bloomberg this week uh, podcast I love when he does feed. That. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. You know, more professional than me. How's that? No, no. But it's, it's not you. It's a great no. It's not, and it is a wonderful way to listen to a story because there's so many interesting uh, perspectives and facts in there and information about where Exxon was and where it is today. So definitely check it out. Our thanks to Joel Weber, editor of Business Week, and Brian Gruley, projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. This is a conversation I've really been looking forward to. This guy I've known for a number of years, followed him and all of his adventures very closely. Steve Pelliuka is, of course, co-chairman of Bain Capital, also the co-owner of the Boston Celtics. Heard of him. He joins us on the phone from Boston. Steve, how are you? I'm great. How are you? We're doing okay. You know, I mean, as best as we well, can you know, do. I, I, guess, I, guess, I guess we've all had better months. We yes. have. Yes. We have indeed. Absolutely. So tell us about Boston and what you're working on, because obviously folks like you sort of rolling up their sleeves and putting together a plan, that's what's got to happen. And you're part of a group there. Uh, tell us what you're up to. Well, th- this is a, obviously a huge systemic complicated problem. And uh, I've been fortunate to be at Bain Capital involved in healthcare investing, biotech investing for a long period of time. And and uh, I've really got a great group of, of scientists uh, that have pitched in in this effort, along with the Mass High Tech Council, an incredible group with uh, with really smart CEOs. And so we started a while back uh, trying to think that we're going to need a back-to-work plan in the face of COVID because a vaccine will be 12 to 18 months away at, at best case. And uh, somebody's got to start thinking about that. And we had the, the, the expertise and, and group to put it together also McKinsey Consulting Team, so a lot of resources. So we began looking at that in earnest about three weeks ago. The focus three weeks ago and, and appropriate focus of the government was really keeping the hospital systems mm-hmm. working, and they've done a fantastic job of that here in Massachusetts. Uh, Charlie Baker and, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Polito and, and the hospital leadership have done an amazing job at that. Um, but we thought we'd, we'd try to get a bunch of data and get out ahead of what will happen when we are going back to work. And how do we go back to work to accomplish two things? One would be we can't have the hospital system overwhelmed again, so steps on how we would not have to be overwhelmed if, if, if this thing snapped back. And second, um, how do we have people go back to work safely? And so we focused uh, getting data from all over the world with the best scientists and, and, uh, and, and all the resources that we have to put that into a, a kind of succinct presentation. Hey, Steve, I do wonder, too, okay, you know, did you look at China? Did you look at South Korea? I'm curious some of the conversations that you guys had in trying to figure out how do you do this? Uh, you know, the way, the way you, you do this is try to segment the problem. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge problem that you can't – it's overwhelming if you try to attack the whole problem. So you segment into those two issues on how do you keep, how do you keep the hospitals, uh, the capacity there, and how do you uh, uh, really reduce what's called the – the R not factor, that, that's a complicated way of saying the rate of spread of the virus. Uh, and then with, with, uh, with the resources we have, scientists here, great scientists in Massachusetts, um, led by Dr. Tom Cahill, uh, we, we can look over the world for their contacts and everything that's out there 
and review different papers and different subjects and different uh, things that different countries have used and what the results have been. And then as best we can, try to collate that, put, put that together and make the best demonstrated practices to see what, how, what can benefit us in Massachusetts. And so, Steve, when you look at back to work and, and sort of what that's going to look like, so many conversations happening, so much speculation, what's your best guess or, or what's something that you're pretty confident we're going to be doing that is different from the world before? I'm pretty confident uh, that we'll be wearing masks mm-hmm. for, for quite a while. Uh, studies across the world are saying that masks are a very effective uh, technique for reducing that R-naught factor. And right now, that R-naught factor for this disease is, is about 2.5, which means it kind of grows exponentially. That's why it's such a problem. Um, and, and, and it obviously has, has a, had a lot of deaths result in that, so it's a, it's a very pernicious virus. So uh, I think we'll be seeing masks. I think we'll be seeing changes in, in, the, in the workplace. Um, I think we'll be seeing uh, having to wake up every day and go through a checklist yeah. to make sure that, that you're not coming to work infected. Um, there's a lot of data out there about a high number of, of asymptomatic uh, uh, kind of people carrying the disease. Our studies have shown, the studies we looked at have shown that maybe that number is not as big as people think. It's actually that people ignore a slight virus, that they ignore a slight cough. And in other countries, when people put in systems where you wake up and you have to fill out on a cell phone, do you have a cough, do you have a virus, what's your temperature, all these indicators, uh, that has been very effective to to people self-diagnosing. So they're actually not asymptomatic. They just have very light symptoms. And and those those folks asymptomatic and ones with light symptoms have been super spreaders because they don't know they have disease and and they're seeing lots of other people. So uh, your world will change in terms of getting ready for work, you brush your teeth, and then you're going to have to... Uh, really go to your cell phone and, and, and fill out a form that, 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 that says you've self-checked. Wow. And no big gatherings, I'm guessing. Very hard to have big gatherings uh, with, with uh, such, such an exponential growth rate uh, of, of this kind of virus. This, this just you know, mirrors, we talked earlier with um, Dr. Labrique over at Johns Hopkins and that same idea about the role of technology in all of this that we're going to have to continue to give up some privacy or, or let go of some of those privacy concerns in order for us, Steve, to get back to a quote-unquote more normal way of living. Well, I think that's a really good question and an important point. Uh, all, all, the, all the programs that we're looking at you know, would have a huge privacy component, and it's uh, it's really a public policy issue of you know where you draw that line. Um, so, to to to, it's a tough call. It's a, it's it's obviously a life and death decision, mm-hmm. and uh, you probably will have to quote give up some privacy, but hopefully very protected uh, in a governmental um, you know encrypted uh, type form. Uh, you know, there there are all sorts of public policy issues. So, for example. This virus is really deadly if someone has a, a, a comorbidity, you know, condition, hypertension, uh, heart issues, and so if if you if you if you decide you're not going to come to work because that's an issue, is is that public? Is it not public? You know, how do you do that? Right. How do you how, how do you ensure those people's safety if you have a back to work program? Um, it's a it's a it's a tough question. Right. That's right. Like your full medical history. Yeah. Has to be sudden, has to yeah. be part of this, right? Because it makes you potentially more vulnerable, or right. does make you more vulnerable in a situation like this. 
Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're lucky in Massachusetts in that in the, the Governor Baker has a commission, and, and Karen Polito is, is uh, Lieutenant Governor Polito is, is leading, and they are thinking about all these issues. So uh, they're really on top of it, and, and they're going to come out with a plan that, you know, as best as you possibly can protect privacy. Uh, the problem with this 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 virus um, and not having a vaccine, how pernicious it is, is is that there there are actually no perfect solutions to go back to work. Right. Um, even right. if you could test everybody every day, tests are ninety eight percent accurate. So some some people are going to slip through, and there's human error in tests. Um, whether whether even if we have a home test, there's human error in all tests. So so perfect is the enemy of the good. I think we can though construct a plan that by and large, will make people safe if they follow these procedures and we can get the economy going back right. again. Uh, the, 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 the terrible thing about this disease is it has a disproportionate impact on lower-income uh, uh, workers, you know, mm-hmm. workers in restaurants, um, in, in, the, in the travel industry. Uh, and so, so with no work, um, that is a terrible situation to be in. And so we've got to figure out a way to safely get people back to work yeah. and, sa- and safeguard our hospital system as well. All right, only got about two minutes left, but we got to talk basketball. Are we going to see an NBA season, Steve? Adam Silver is, uh, you know, an incredible commissioner, and he's he's on on top of this every day. And I would just say he's monitoring it, um, working with public safety health officials. Mm-hmm. He has access to all the data that we have, and the NBA and his incredible staff and medical group um, has access to you know all the best information from China throughout the world. And uh, Adam's number one watchword is is he the NBA will be opened up in a safe and responsible way and working with government officials to do that in a safe and responsible way. So um, um, I, 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 like everybody else, I'd love to see the season back, but I agree with Adam that, that uh, he's got to come up with, uh, with, a, with a plan that's going to work for public safety, right. and then we'll get basketball back, and, and he, he's going to take it day by day as more information uh, pours in. The crazy thing is we're only about it – like, it seems like we've been in the situation, to me at least since I've been sitting in my office – Looking out the same window for I don't know thirty days now. Yeah, it seems like this has been four years to me, but it's yes. only been, been about a couple months. Yeah. Well, Steve, but is it safe to say that probably a first step will be games being played, but without fans in the stands? Uh, you know, Adam is looking at all that, and I think that's a logical conclusion. Uh, if if if, uh, if games in all sports begin, uh, probably you you want you, you want to make sure that. That the sports are not, you know, responsible for for spreading the virus. So, right. obviously, having having fans not be in the stands would would be would get you an earlier opening. Yeah. All right. Well, we're certainly uh, missing basketball. I missed uh, chatting with you earlier this year about March Madness and your beloved uh, Blue Devils. So, uh, hopefully, we get back to something resembling something normal. Steve Paliuka, uh, glad you're on the case. Co-chairman of Bain Capital, co-owner of the Boston Celtics, joining us on the phone from Boston, Carol. And look forward to hearing about their recovery and return to work framework yeah. because I think this is what everybody's going to have to be sharing about what works, um, what are the systems. You know, I thought about when we were talking with one of the, you know, April Taylor uh, Billions, you know, how do you do film production? So right. I think everybody's got to be sharing this information and um, love how Boston gets together, pulls in leaders from all walks of life. life and These are your people. I, I, you know, you got to love Boston. It's just I know. magnificent. It's a great town. It's a great, great town. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time to take a look at the close, drive to the close with Cole Smead back with us, president portfolio manager at Smead Capital Management, roughly $1.6 billion in assets under management on the phone from Phoenix on this Thursday. And on a day where, as we heard from Charlie, we've been bouncing around and we are off our lows, but still down across the board on those major equity averages. Colt, nice to have you back with us. Um, how Good are you here. doing? How are, how's your family doing? Uh, we're doing really well. I mean, all things considered, we got three kids doing, uh, you know, online learning, and um, it makes being in an office look way easier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's really what we is, That's so really true, right? Everybody's talking about, you know, if you didn't respect teachers before, which is first of all, shame on you. You definitely do now because it is tough, tough work. I remember uh, reading something, Cole, you may have seen the same thing, that Shonda Rhimes, of course, famous showrunner of all these amazing shows that have been on television, said after teaching, it was something like, after teaching uh, my kids for an hour and a half, I now think that every teacher should make a billion dollars <laughs> a week. <laughs> so it yeah. definitely uh, checks out. Well, you know, meanwhile, what's happening in the markets from your perspective? Because, you know, for folks out there looking at their 401ks, you know, if they dare, they actually see a, a nice little optimistic you uh, of some sort. Um, how should people be feeling? Because I'm still nervous. Yeah, and that's a great, great question. There's quite a contrast in the market. And, uh, you know, you guys were just touching at this where you're, you're kind of looking at blow-off pops, as you just mentioned, in certain names. Um, and the market just continues to get narrow in that. At the same time, what the, the depravity of what uh, went on the last 60 days, um, there are just distinct areas and places that there have been losers. So, uh, you know, a couple of days ago I saw the stat was that the market was only 17% below its high um, on average, but if you look at the median stock, it was still down 28%. And that shows you the chasm between the haves and the have-nots, and uh, today is just kind of a picture of the haves in terms of, you know, who reported, what they're excited about. But that is not, in our opinion, where the opportunity is coming out of this. That's just that was the rearview mirror. So tell us about investment choices you have or have not been making. You run a value fund. You run, yeah. you know, some other funds. I'm just curious how you've been either seeing opportunities or still fighting to find some. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a wonderful question. So just to give a sense, I give you guys a sense. You know, we're entering an era where stocks are probably only going to make 2% compounded over the next two years. Um, that, that means roughly dividends and you know, maybe some dividend growth, but maybe it's a little higher at 3%. And that's for the broad indices. That being said, um, you can go into places like the subprime auto loan market right now and go look at a company like Credit Acceptance Corporation, who we just got involved for the first time ever in this. It's an incredibly high return on equity business. That what you know you hear subprime autos and you think cool, are you like, are you crazy? And the answer is that space has just disappeared in terms of who's willing to provide liquidity. And so I, I'll never forget Richard Bernstein many years ago said you want to invest like the mafia. You go into businesses at times when nobody else wants to be in that business, and you provide capital, but you want to extract really high returns on a legal basis. 
And that's what we can do with a business like that today. There's other places like the energy business, you know, the Wells Fargo comment, distress. That, that's mafia-like investing opportunities, and that's just that's, – there's particular places for that. Uh, and a lot of the blow-off tops you're seeing, there's money as available to fly into that as possible. Right. Rich Bernstein, of course, the longtime strategist over at Merrill. I used to talk to him a lot of time. uh, And then moved on to, I think, Eaton Vance and then is now on his own. But, yeah, watched the markets for a long time. Yeah. yeah, Go ahead. Go ahead, Cole. I was just going to say, where is capital scarce is what should make you draw out of this. Um, You know, I I, I wrote a piece this last week talking about, you know, effortless money, as Buffett uh, quoted in his 2000 shareholder letter, is what we've seen in the VC world in the last five to seven years. Effortless money is what he referred to that as. And I say that because the question is, the markets can often augment economics or create what we call financialized demand. And if that is showing up in your business, you should be very scared because funding can change quickly as we see in the environment. Where will funding change that will change the economics of industries? Um, the same fragile customers that are asking for rent abatements in the commercial space right now that are in the startup land are going to have to ask for rent abatements on hosting and maybe might be walking away from digital ads at some point if they can't fund their business. Yeah. No one is pricing that risk in the markets right now. Yeah, I do think a lot about that. I mean, and we're starting to see that around the edges. I mean, especially when you look across some of the media names and, and things like that, you know, budgets start to shrink. And you're right, there are these sort of ripple effects. And, and we talk about it all the time from the consumer perspective, too. You know, a, a change in, you know, not going out to eat has much more dramatic effect than just, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe people are tightening their budgets a, a little bit especially at the scale that we are that we are talking about here Cole so what do you i guess with all of that what do you worry about the most and how does that translate into into action or or maybe inaction when it comes to someone's portfolio yeah no it's, I, you know what do we worry about the most in the interim here is um you know watching these blow off tops taking the market to a higher level it's not the average stock so that just looks like it's going to set up some near-term disappointment. We are rallying off the low um, and, and in kind of a, a bear market rally style, in mm-hmm. our opinion. Um, it doesn't mean you can't find great bargains out there, but that's not what's hitting wonderful new highs and taking the market higher. Where you have to go into industries like consumer, like mall REITs, we've been a buyer in Maserich and Simon mm. Property Group, those kind of places offer wonderful potential, uh, wonderful prices, and they can gain the benefit of the reversion of the economy back to normal. Well, wow, that's, that's a bold, that's a bold choice. I got to jump in because it's like when my husband says to me, just because it's on sale, honey, doesn't mean it's a great deal. And I, I do. Know, price is what you pay. Value is what you get. And we, when we come out of this, we do know that things are going to change. To your point, that's no question. Things are going to change. But how fun is it to do what we just got done doing? So we know it will be different than that. What have we been doing? We've been sitting at home trying to entertain ourselves in many ways. If we don't have a backyard or we don't have a front driveway, we're doing that in a very small area. We're going to want to get out. This might be the summer when states open up. This might be the summer that no one wants to be home. Right. And I will say, and Jason, I don't know how much you think about this. I know because you have you know a lot of discussions around your dinner table like we do, and I'm assuming you do too, Cole, is that 
you know, we like to be around people and we are adaptable and we will figure out how to do it in a safe way. And I think that's what industries and leaders, um, just like we talked with uh, Steve Paliuka, you know, we're going to all figure this out and it will be different, but we'll figure out how to get back to doing some of those things that we took for granted beforehand, Cole. We we agree. 16-year-old girls, they're going to want to show up at Ulta and they're going to want to get their makeup done. Why? It's somewhere to go. It's somewhere to be around people. It's likely to be closer to a mall we're going to want to go entertain ourselves because we're deprived for fun. Yeah. I I just, it's so interesting to try and figure out, you know, what, uh, what the patterns of behavior are going to be and, you know, whether, how far back uh, we go. And I, I sort of go back to what uh, Mike McKee, the metaphor that he gave us, uh, Carol, this notion of, you know, it's not a V, it's not a U, it's a swoosh. It's a, it's a, Nike, a Nike swoosh. swoosh. Yeah. So I love that. I really like that. Yeah, it's a good one. All right. Cole Smead, thank you so much. President and Portfolio Manager for Smead Capital Management, looking after about $1.6 billion. Join us on the phone from Phoenix. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.